This is Brad Dunshee from beautiful downtown San Francisco, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To get your show everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little bit more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats, so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. Dreamers, sometimes when I'm driving in the car with my kid, and she's driving now, and you know, we always had that rule that whoever's behind the wheel controls the music. Well, all of that's kind of biting me in the ass now. She listens to a variety of music genres, including rap, which I'm all good with. I just have no idea who any of these people are, with a few exceptions. She listens to artists like Travis Scott and 2 Chains and Cardi B, Gucci Mane, Meek Mill, Chance the Rapper. Once in a while, she'll mention Notorious B.I.G., Eminem, Jay-Z, Kanye West, You know, some names I'm a little bit more familiar with. As a genre, I can't say that I was ever hugely into rap music. Rap started becoming popular in the early to mid 80s when I was in elementary school. And my friends and I, we liked stuff like Beastie Boys and LL Cool J and the Sugar Hill Gang, Salt and Peppa, Rob Bass, Run DMC. But that was about the extent of it. Then you had those artists that started coming around that were pushing the boundaries with their music. Groups like NWA and 2 Live Crew. But I wasn't really aware of it at the time, and it may have had its origins going back to even the 1970s. It was this East Coast-West Coast rivalry. Of course, being from Southern California, the radio stations were inundated with West Coast hip-hop artists. And we're going to focus on one prominent figure in our story today. There were a number of elements that paved the way for West Coast hip-hop long before what eventually gave rise to the gangster rap movement, which began to emerge in the late 80s and early 90s. And what laid the foundation of gangster rap, at least here on the West Coast, was 1988's Straight Outta Compton, which obviously from the title of it focused on life and growing up in Compton, California, which at the time had a notorious reputation for an alarmingly high rate of gang violence. The album brought national attention to West Coast hip-hop, especially in the inner cities in and around Los Angeles. Then in the early 90s, after NWA broke up due to internal conflict, some of their members would go on to enjoy successful solo careers. Easy e Dr. Dre, Ice Cube... Then Tupac Shakur arrived on the scene with his debut, Tupacalypse, 
where he rapped about social injustices, poverty, and police brutality. Dr. Dre released his solo album, The Chronic, which was critically and commercially well-received, and gave birth to the G-Funk sound that became the cornerstone of the West Coast sound. Then Snoop Dogg released his debut, Doggy Style, in 1993, and Tupac's second release, All Eyes on Me, in 96. And the latter were all produced under the label Death Row Records. And Death Row Records is said to have been founded on money that had been extorted from, among others, Vanilla Ice, also known as Robert Van Winkle. And the man who is said to have extorted that money, the man who founded Death Row Records with that money in 1991, that would be only one of a plethora of things that he would come to be known for. And we are going to delve into the saga that is this episode of California Dreaming, number 79, the tale of the never-ending fall of Suge Knight. Marion Hugh Knight Jr., also known as Suge Knight, was born on April 19, 1965 in Compton, California, and he was the son of Maxine and Marion Knight Sr. His nickname, Suge, came from a childhood nickname that he was given, Sugar Bear. He attended Linwood High School, where he was a standout athlete in both football and track. After he graduated in 1983, he played football at El Camino Community College for two years. Then, in 1985, he transferred to the University of Nevada at Las Vegas and played football there for two years as well. Knight was eligible to be drafted in the 1987 NFL Draft, but he was not selected. He was invited to the Los Angeles Rams training camp, but he was cut by the Rams during camp, and he became a replacement player during the 1987 NFL player strike and ended up actually playing two games for the Rams. But that would be as far as Knight's career would go with the NFL due to an off-the-field incident. The same year as the NFL strike, while attempting to carjack a man in Las Vegas, Knight shot him and was subsequently arrested for attempted murder. He would end up pleading no contest only to a misdemeanor and was given probation. You're probably thinking that's a pretty light sentence for such a serious crime. But you will find out when we get to Knight's lengthy criminal record that light sentences and slaps on the wrist are a running theme in his life. But this shooting would put an end to Knight's NFL career for good. Following his stint in professional football, Knight worked as a concert promoter, as well as a bodyguard for celebrities, including Bobby Brown. In 1989, Knight founded his own music publishing company, and his first sizable profits came when Vanilla Ice signed over his royalties from his huge hit at the time, Ice Ice Baby. Apparently, the song included material written by one of Knight's clients, Mario Johnson. So there are several versions of the story as to how all of that went down, but this is how Vanilla Ice himself told the story. He had rocketed up the charts in 1990 with his smash hit Ice Ice Baby off his debut album, To the Extreme. In a 1996 interview with ABC, he said, The first time I met Suge Knight was at the restaurant in L.A. called Palm Restaurant. I was sitting there eating a nice meal, and all of a sudden, these huge guys that looked like a football team showed up. 
You know, it was very intimidating to see these guys who were bigger than my own bodyguards, you know, and a bunch of them. They pretty much grabbed my bodyguard and pulled him out and sat down there next to me and said, how you doing? I had my bodyguards who had their guns and they had their people who had guns and they had us outnumbered. Vanilla Ice explained that after that encounter at the restaurant, Knight and his entourage kept showing up wherever he went. That same night, Knight showed up at his hotel suite at the Bellage Hotel in Beverly Hills. Well, Dreamers, the article that I read said Beverly Hills, but I've been to the Bellage Hotel in the mid-90s and it was actually located in West Hollywood. But anyway, that's just detail stuff. So Knight showed up with six very large men. Vanilla Ice said, They roughed up one of my bodyguards. They roughed everybody else up in my entourage. Suge took me out onto the balcony and started talking to me personally. Now, legend has it that Suge Knight actually dangled Vanilla Ice over the edge of this balcony. But that, it seems, is only legend. Vanilla Ice has said that he was given the impression that he would go over the balcony because as the men spoke on the balcony, Knight wanted him to be clear just how high up they were. Then Knight presented Vanilla Ice with a legal document and encouraged him to sign over his rights to Ice Ice Baby to Mario Johnson. But Vanilla Ice would insist that Johnson had nothing to do with Ice Ice Baby. At the time, the rights to the song was worth about $4 million. Of it, Vanilla Ice said... I signed them, and I walked away alive. For Knight's part, he would claim in his own interview at the time that Vanilla Ice agreed to the deal and that there was no problem. They agreed that Mario Johnson wrote the song, and Vanilla Ice did not have a problem with it. Knight scoffed at the insinuation that he led Vanilla Ice to the balcony to make him think that he would throw him over the edge unless he signed the papers. Vanilla Ice walked away from the encounter with his life. But you will come to see that not everybody who crossed paths with Suge Knight would. With his newfound wealth from the royalties from Ice Ice Baby, Knight formed his management company and began signing some West Coast hip-hop artists. And also around this time, he would become acquainted with several members of NWA. A couple of them. Dr. Dre and the DOC both wanted to part ways with NWA and the label that they were under, Ruthless Records, headed by Eazy-E, also a member of NWA. Their manager, a man named Jerry Heller, said that Knight, along with his entourage of large men, threatened both himself and Eazy-E with baseball bats and lead pipes in order to force them to let Dr. Dre, the DOC, and another singer named Michelle A. out of their contracts with Ruthless Records, to which they obliged. Dr. Dre and the DOC would go on to become co-founders of Death Row Records in 1991, along with Suge Knight. Death Row Records would quickly rise to the top of the record industry when it came to West Coast rap. Knight was able to secure a distribution deal with Interscope Records, and in 1992, they debuted Dr. Dre's first solo album, entitled The Chronic. Within a year, it was certified triple platinum. 
Then Dr. Dre's protege, Snoop Dogg, followed up in 1993 with his debut album, Doggy Style, and it would go certified quadruple platinum within a year of its release. Oh, and by the way, it's worth mentioning now that Suge Knight does have a long-standing association with the Bloods street gang. By 1993, Knight and Death Row Records began publicly feuding with other figures in the industry. And things really began to escalate when a feud began with East Coast rap figure Sean Puffy Combs. Knight openly disrespected the label that Combs founded, Bad Boy Records, on air during the Source Awards show in August of 1995. He was critical of Combs, sort of injecting himself into everyone's music and in their videos, and he said to the audience, Anyone out there who want to be a recording artist, who want to stay a star, but don't have to worry about the executive producer trying to be in all the videos, on all the records, dancing around, come to death row. That same year, 1995, Knight actively pursued Tupac Shakur, who was in jail at the time for a sexual assault in New York. Upon his release, Tupac signed with Death Row for $1.4 million, and this would lead to his critically acclaimed album, All Eyes on Me, in 1995. But as Knight's reputation for being somewhat thuggish began to overshadow Death Row, Dr. Dre began wanting to see his way out. By 1996, Dr. Dre and Death Row Records would part ways and Dre would go on to form his own label, Aftermath Entertainment. Knight would hit back with a barrage of records bashing Dr. Dre. On the evening of September 7, 1996, Tupac Shakur and Suge Knight were in attendance at the Mike Tyson fight at the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Following the boxing match, one of Knight's associates, a man named Trayvon Lane, noticed a man in the MGM lobby named Orlando Anderson, who was known to be a Crips gang member from Compton. Travon Lane told Tupac that they had had a previous encounter with Orlando Anderson and that he had robbed him a few months earlier in a footlocker in Compton. This prompted Tupac to attack Anderson in the MGM grand lobby, punching him in the face, causing him to fall to the ground. The rest of the individuals in Knight's entourage joined in on the assault on Anderson. The fight was eventually broken up by hotel security, and all of this was captured on video surveillance. That same night at 11 p.m., Knight was pulled over by Las Vegas Metro Police for playing his car stereo too loud and for failing to have license plates on the vehicle. The plates were located in the trunk, and they were subsequently released without being given a citation. About 10 minutes later, Knight, who was driving the car, with Tupac as a passenger, stopped at a red light at the intersection of East Flamingo Road and Koval Lane. A vehicle pulled up next to them on the left side. Inside were two women, who Tupac began talking to, and he invited them to go to the Club 662, a nightclub that was owned by Suge Knight, which was just a couple more blocks east of where they were at. Five minutes later, at 11.15 p.m., a white four-door late-model Cadillac pulled up to the right side of Knight's BMW. The window rolled down, 
and someone inside that vehicle opened fire. Tupac was struck four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. One of the bullets entered Tupac's right lung. Knight was struck in the head by bullet fragments. Despite the fact that Knight's vehicle was being followed by others in his entourage, even one of them having said to have followed the Cadillac for a time, nobody driving behind the vehicle carrying Tupac would end up cooperating with any of the investigation. Knight quickly made a U-turn, I assume to try to get to a hospital, but they got caught up in traffic. Police were finally able to reach the vehicle and an ambulance made its way to the scene and picked up both men and took them to University Medical Center. That night, Tupac would undergo the first of three surgeries to try and save his life. In order to stop the internal bleeding, his right lung was removed. The following morning, Knight was released from the hospital. Tupac would end up being placed in a medically induced coma and was placed on life support. However, six days after being shot, he went into respiratory failure, which led to cardiac arrest resulting from the removal of his lung. Doctors attempted to revive him, but ultimately, Tupac's mother made the decision to halt medical treatment. On September 13, 1996, a few minutes after four in the afternoon, Tupac Shakur was pronounced dead. He was 25 years old. Fast forward six months to early 1997. Christopher Wallace, better known as Notorious B.I.G., but for purposes of our story, we'll just call him Biggie. He was in the Los Angeles area by February of 1997, promoting his upcoming sophomore album entitled Life After Death, which was set to be released March 25, 1997. He was also in California to film a music video for the first single off the album. On March 5th, Biggie conducted a radio interview, during which time he acknowledged that he had hired extra security because he feared for his personal safety, and he referenced the ongoing East Coast-West Coast feud. And you know, he is part of the East Coast hip-hop scene, visiting the West Coast. And with that, along with the murder of Tupac six months earlier, had him on edge. On March 7th, Biggie attended the Soul Train Music Awards, at which he was a presenter, but in doing so, he actually got booed by the audience. The next evening, on March 8th, he attended a music awards after party that was being hosted by Vibe magazine, and it has been reported that among some of the guests were members of both the Crips and the Bloods street gangs. Hours later, going into the early morning hours of March 9th, Biggie and his entourage left the after party at around 12.30 in the morning. The Los Angeles County Fire Department had shut down the party due to overcrowding. Biggie was riding in the front passenger seat in one of two Chevy Suburbans that carried him along with his associates, Damian Butler and junior mafia member Little Cease, as well as driver Gregory Young. Sean Combs was in the second Suburban that was following them with three bodyguards and following them was a third vehicle in which their director of security was riding in. At the time, the streets were relatively busy with traffic leaving the after party. At 12.45 a.m., 
The SUV that Biggie was riding in was stopped at a red light approximately 50 yards or 46 meters away from the venue where the party was being held when a dark-colored Chevy Impala pulled up alongside their SUV. The driver, described as a black male wearing a blue suit with a bow tie, rolled his window down, pointed a 9mm blue steel pistol, and fired into their vehicle. Biggie was struck four times. Three out of the four of them would have been non-fatal, one hitting Biggie's left forearm, the second hitting him in the back, missing all vital organs. The third went through his left thigh, but the fourth bullet entered through his right hip and struck several vital organs, including his colon, liver, heart, and left lung, coming to rest in his left shoulder. He was driven to Cedar sinai Medical Center, where doctors performed emergency surgery in an effort to save his life but Biggie would succumb to his wounds 30 minutes after he was shot. He was 24 years old. Theories abound as to who killed Tupac and Biggie, because as you may very well know, both murders today remain unsolved. Both certainly could use an episode of their own, so we aren't going to go deep into the mysteries. But I do want to mention that there are theories that suggest that Suge Knight was involved in both murders. Obviously, if he was involved, he didn't do the killings himself, as he was even in the driver's seat next to Tupac when he was shot and subsequently died of those injuries. But it's been said that Tupac was on the verge of leaving Death Row Records, and the theory has been floated that in order to prevent that from happening, Knight orchestrated his killing so he would never have the chance to switch labels. Then, in order to distract the investigation from being directed towards him, he ordered the killing of Biggie six months later in an effort to continue to push the West Coast-East Coast feuding. Since then, former death row artists, including Snoop Dogg, have openly accused Knight of being responsible for Tupac's death. Following Tupac's death, he released his album, The Dog Father, and he continued to point the finger at Knight as being involved and then he left Death Row Records in 1998. And since then, they've pretty much had a back-and-forth verbal feud in the years following. It's also been thought that Suge Knight didn't have anything to do with Tupac's death, and it is believed so because people don't think that he would have put himself in the path of bullets if he knew something like that was going to go down, but they do believe that he had a hand in Biggie's death as an act of revenge. Whatever the case, like I said, both murders remain unsolved to this day, and that isn't likely going to change anytime soon. On April 4, 2006, as a result of a civil litigation lawsuit filed against him by Lydia Harris, who, along with her husband, were purportedly among the first to bankroll death row records, Knight filed for bankruptcy. In her lawsuit, she claimed to have been swindled out of a 50% stake in the record label and Knight had been ordered to pay Lydia Harris $107 million, so he filed bankruptcy. He denied having money tucked away in foreign bank accounts or in an African company that is in the business of diamonds and gold, and he claimed to be making no money from any kind of employment or anything. 
When they took a look-see at Knight's bank account, he had all but $12 deposited. And when they looked at his assets, he had about $1,000 worth of clothing, $2,000 worth of furniture and appliances, and $25,000 worth in jewelry. Two months later, a federal judge ordered a bankruptcy trustee to take over death row records, citing gross mismanagement. Knight filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which allowed him to continue operating death row records while the restructuring was going on. The following year, Knight put his Malibu, California mansion on the market for $6.2 million, which sold at the end of 2008 for $4.56 million. In June of 2008, the bankruptcy court placed death row records up on the auctioning block and the winning bid went to Global Music Group. But they failed to come up with the funding, so it eventually went to Wide Awake Entertainment for $24 million. So let's get into Suge Knight's criminal history. Settle in because this is going to take a while. I will start off by mentioning that while he was never arrested for anything he did in college, along with playing football at UNLV during his senior year in 1986, he became known to be a pretty prominent drug dealer on campus when he wasn't on the field or in classes. In October of 1987, he was arrested for the first time when he violated the terms of a restraining order that his then-girlfriend and future wife, Sharitha Golden, had taken out on him. He was arrested and faced domestic violence charges when he attacked Sharitha on the street. He grabbed her by the hair and cut off her ponytail. Two weeks later, on Halloween, Knight was arrested and charged with carjacking, attempted murder, and some weapons charges when he shot a man in the leg and the wrist while trying to steal his Nissan Maxima. He ended up pleading guilty to some lesser charges, and I did read that the fact that he was somewhat well-known for his short-lived football career, that that may have helped him broker this sweetheart deal. But his charges were dropped to misdemeanors, and he was sentenced to three years of probation and a $1,000 fine. That's it. For shooting a man and stealing his car. Ten years later, Knight told the Washington Post that it went to a misdemeanor because the gun belonged to the guy that he shot. This was the incident that I mentioned earlier that ended his chances of ever being a player in the NFL. In 1988, Knight was arrested for assaulting a man at LAX airport. I did not find any more details on that case, so perhaps the charges were eventually dropped. In 1990, on the verge of forming death row records while in Las Vegas, Knight used a loaded handgun to pistol whip a man across the face, breaking his jaw. For the assault, he was fined $9,000 and given a two-year suspended sentence. Also this year, back in California, Knight had a flurry of charges, including two assault and battery cases, one in Hollywood and one in Beverly Hills, and he also pleaded guilty to disturbing the peace in Van Nuys. All of these cases resulted in more probation. In 1991, while putting together death row records, I mentioned earlier that he had utilized intimidation tactics in order to get Dr. Dre and DOC out of their record contracts so that they could go sign with death row, though no criminal charges were filed. Still, in 1991, 
he was given another suspended sentence for carrying a concealed weapon in Beverly Hills. It was also around this time that he had intimidated Vanilla Ice into signing over his rights to Ice Ice Baby, which eventually was settled in court. In 1992, Knight racked up two convictions for assault with a deadly weapon, both resulting in more suspended sentences. He was arrested, charged, and convicted with carrying a concealed weapon in West Covina, California. He was arrested and charged and convicted of disturbing the peace again in Van Nuys. And he was arrested and charged with armed assault when he beat and shot at two aspiring rap artists for using the phones at Death Row Records without asking for permission. But according to those two aspiring rappers, George and Lidwood Stanley, thanks to a personal deal that the prosecutor made with Suge Knight to have his daughter appear on a Death Row record production, resulted in a plea deal that got Knight off the hook for the armed assault charges. Still in 1992, Knight, Dr. Dre, and the DOC were arrested in New Orleans after an incident involving the stabbing of two people. It wasn't quite clear exactly what went down or where it even happened, but regardless, Knight was involved somehow. I was unable to see what, if any, convictions he had or if the charges were just dropped. In 1993, Knight was named in a drug trafficking and dealing ring that was transporting cocaine from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. And again, Knight was slapped with more probation. By this time, Death Row and Suge Knight had solidified an untouchable image due to the relatively little or no consequences for his violent criminal acts. 1994 was a quiet year for Knight, as there is no notable criminal activity, at least nothing that he was arrested for anyway. But he quickly picked up the pace in 1995, when Knight pleaded no contest in federal court to two felony counts, armed robbery and assault with a firearm. Also in 1995, there was a much more serious incident that occurred at a death row records party at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles, where a man named Kelly Jamerson was stomped to death inside the venue. Kelly was 28 years old at the time and was in attendance at this invitation-only party when an argument erupted just as the event was coming to a close. Snoop Dogg had just finished performing and as they were leaving, a fight broke out on the dance floor area of the theater and people began to scatter away from the center of the commotion. Apparently, some heated words were exchanged, and a fight ensued between a friend of his and another person. Kelly attempted to intervene on behalf of his friend, but ended up being attacked himself. Investigators said that as many as 8 to 10 people were seen stomping on Kelly, who attempted numerous times to make it to his feet, only to be stomped back down again. Not only was he stomped, but chairs were thrown at him as well. Battered and covered in blood, he made it as far as the front entrance of the theater before he collapsed. A relative, who remained anonymous, said that she saw so many people beating and stomping Kelly that she didn't even know it was him at first. And then when the crowd dispersed, she still couldn't recognize him as he had been stomped and battered so badly about the head 
he was unrecognizable, though she did know it was him based on what he was wearing. Kelly worked as a roofer. He had two children, a six-year-old and a one-year-old, and he coached his son's t-ball team. He was just a good guy. Death Row Records representative stated that Kelly was not on their guest list. The party was invitation only for security reasons to try to ensure that something like this wouldn't happen. But his family said that he was an invited guest as he was a friend of the DJ that night. I could not find any information indicating anyone was ever charged with Kelly's death and it remains unsolved to this day. It seems as though in this world nobody is willing to talk but it is believed that Knight either knows or had something to do with the incident based on his track record. Also in 1995, Knight was arrested and charged with conspiracy to illegally possess a firearm. But again, Knight faced no jail time for that charge either. In 1996, Knight was involved in a fight in the lobby of the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas following a Mike Tyson boxing match. Both he and Tupac Shakur were caught on surveillance footage beating Orlando Anderson in retaliation for a previous attack that Anderson had committed on one of their associates. As you know, just hours later, Tupac would be shot and mortally wounded following this incident in the MGM lobby. That fight, however, would result in Knight facing some serious jail time for the first time. In 1997, Knight was sentenced to nine years in prison for a probation violation resulting from that fight, of which he would serve five years. In 2002, Knight was released from prison, and he had a plan to try and stay out of clubs and crowded events and stay off the streets. But in December of 2002, not long after his release, Knight was arrested yet again after Death Row Records was raided stemming from a murder investigation. Though, for once, Knight wasn't involved in that case. There was a problem, though. Knight was found to be in the company of a number of gang members, and a part of his parole was that he not hang out with gang members. He spent another 61 days in jail for that. In June of 2003, Knight assaulted a parking attendant at the White Lotus nightclub. So much for staying away from clubs, I guess. He left the club to come outside and found that his car had been blocked in. As a result of this assault, Knight was sent back to prison again for a parole violation and would serve another 10 months. In February of 2003, Knight was pulled over by police for making an illegal U-turn. Because he was on parole, officers were allowed to search his vehicle without a warrant, and the search turned up a stash of marijuana, though I'm not clear how much he actually had in the car. He spent another week in jail and then placed under house arrest for two months afterwards, and eventually the possession charge was dropped. In August of 2005, Knight was shot in the leg at an MTV Music Awards party in Miami, that was hosted by Kanye West. At the time, nobody was cooperating with the investigation, so the shooting went unsolved for a while. Then eight years later, a witness began cooperating with the federal investigation, and this witness, 
a man named Mohammed Stewart said that he shot Knight at the behest of James Rosemond, a New York City music manager who had a history of being involved in the West Coast-East Coast feud, and by this time had just been sentenced to life in prison for heading up a drug trafficking ring. Rosemond also provided him with the gun and $10,000. And this would not be the only time Suge Knight would be shot at an MTV Music Awards party. In 2006, Knight declared bankruptcy, claiming debts of over $100 million, which I already went over. In 2008, outside a Las Vegas strip club, Knight was spotted by Metro Police punching a naked woman with one hand and brandishing a knife with the other hand. This woman was apparently his girlfriend, Melissa Isaac, so Knight was arrested on drug charges, aggravated assault, assault with a deadly weapon, and domestic violence. He posted $19,000 bail, and eventually the charges were all dropped when Melissa Isaac failed to show up for court to testify. Then Knight was in another flurry of altercations. In 2006, he had a dispute with Snoop Dogg after Snoop apparently insulted him in an interview he conducted with Rolling Stone magazine. In May of 2008, Knight was involved in an altercation outside the Shag nightclub in Hollywood, purportedly over money. Knight was apparently knocked out cold during the fight, but nothing ever came of that as he refused to cooperate with the investigation. In 2009, Knight was involved in an altercation with business manager Robert Carnes in Scottsdale, Arizona during the NBA All-Star Weekend. Knight was punched in the face and sustained several injuries and was treated at a local hospital. So all was quiet until 2012, when Knight was arrested on February 8th in Las Vegas for marijuana possession and driving on a suspended license. He also had numerous outstanding warrants from previous infractions. He was given another three years of probation. In 2013, he was pulled over for another traffic violation, and he was found to be driving on a suspended license again. He was arrested and paid the $20,000 bail. In February of 2014, Dr. Dre sued Knight and Death Row Records for a little more than $3 million in unpaid royalties for music that Dr. Dre was involved in while he was with the label claiming that he was owed $1.2 million in artist-producer royalties and $1.1 million in digital sales and $676,000 in unpaid mechanical royalties. Also in 2014, Knight was caught on surveillance video punching an employee at a medical marijuana dispensary after he was turned away for not having the proper documentation. No charges stemmed from that assault either. And then on August 24, 2014, the second MTV Music Awards pre-party shooting incident happened. This one was hosted by Chris Brown at One Oak Nightclub in West Hollywood. Knight was shot six times, but despite that, he was able to walk himself out of the club towards the ambulance. Based on what was captured on surveillance, it was determined that Knight was specifically intended as the target of the shooting. He underwent surgery for his injuries and was released from the hospital three days later. 
No arrests have ever been made in the shooting, and Knight has been fully uncooperative in the investigation. On October 29, 2014, Knight, along with comedian Cat Williams, were both placed under arrest and charged with second-degree robbery stemming from accusations that they stole a camera from a paparazzi photographer in Beverly Hills. Knight and Williams were leaving a recording studio when they were approached by a celebrity photographer named Leslie Redden. They came to be under the impression that she took pictures of Knight's young son without asking, and he apparently told her that he's got a bitch who would beat her ass, with a few other choice words involved. And Knight purportedly shoved her to the ground and took her camera. She also filed a civil lawsuit. They both pleaded not guilty, and the trial for this case was put on hold for some reasons that we are about to discuss. But because of all of Knight's previous and various convictions, he was facing as many as 30 years in prison for parole and probation violations because of the theft of this camera. Finally, we arrive at Suge Knight's most recent troubles with the law, and it would be his most serious. And it would all have to do with a movie that Dr. Dre and Ice Cube were co-producing at the time, the NWA biopic Stray Outta Compton, which was set to be released that August of 2015. A teaser for the film was apparently leaked in December of 2014, and word quickly got back to Knight that there were some issues with the film that might need his attention. A childhood friend of Knight's and former employee at Death Row Records said in an interview with Rolling Stone, People were working on the set and were calling and telling Suge, Hey man, this movie is really becoming a Death Row movie with the Suge lookalike in the movie beating people up in the studio and all that. Suge felt like they were using his likeness in this movie without consulting him. So on January 29, 2015, Knight arrived at the Straight Outta Compton's production base driving a red Ford Raptor pickup truck. Without stopping, he blew past the security detail. Once word spread that Knight was on the premises, the movie producers began to panic and Dr. Dre's bodyguard kept him in a secure location, refusing to allow him to go anywhere on the site until the situation with Knight was brought under control. A man named Clay Sloan, a so-called non-active gang member, who was working on the set as a technical advisor, intervened and approached Knight. He said something along the lines of knowing that there was a problem between him and Dr. Dre, and soon the confrontation escalated to the point where the two men were involved in a very heated verbal exchange. Finally, Clay Sloan asked Knight to leave so that they could continue with the movie production, and eventually Knight agreed to leave the premises. Not too long afterwards, a man named Terry Carter called Knight. Terry was a well-regarded entrepreneur from the South Central area of Los Angeles, most notably having founded Heavyweight Records with Ice Cube in 1998. He was present when the altercation took place between Clay Sloan and Knight, and he wanted to try to smooth things out with Knight, as he had a reputation for being what some would describe as a peacemaker. The exact nature of Knight's relationship with Terry Carter is not really known. 
Some would say that the two had only ever crossed paths a couple of times over the years. But others would say the two men were friends and had even discussed the possibility of joint business ventures. Whatever the case, Terry seemingly knew Knight well enough to want to call him up and ask him to come to a burger stand in Compton called Tam's so that they could talk. Tam's was located only a couple of miles away from the set of Straight Outta Compton. When Knight arrived, he pulled up sort of adjacent to the Tam's parking lot. Terry was already there, and he was in the company of at least one other person as well as Clay Sloan. According to Sloan, as soon as Knight arrived, he began making some disparaging remarks about him, without realizing that Sloan was nearby, able to hear the things that Knight was saying. Sloan, in his words, popped out like a jack-in-the-box, after which he aggressively approached Knight and said, let's do this, at which point Sloan began punching Knight through the window of his truck, and Knight hadn't even gotten out of the vehicle yet, still driving that Ford Raptor truck. Suddenly, the truck jerked backwards, and this caused Sloan to be knocked down to the ground. And just as suddenly, Knight threw the truck into drive and advanced forward, this time running over Sloan's ankles, pretty much crushing both of them. Without stopping, Knight floored the accelerator, causing his vehicle to quickly propel forward, and this time, he ran down Terry Carter as he tried to get out of the way. Terry died as a result of being ran over by Knight, who subsequently left the scene. This whole incident was captured on surveillance video. The footage is grainy, and it is clear that Terry Carter was struck by the vehicle, and it is graphic to watch. Which, if you would like to see it, it's pretty easy to find on YouTube. Anyway, 12 hours after Knight ran down and killed Terry Carter, he turned himself in to authorities. It appeared as though Knight came ready, attorneys and all, explaining to the media that Mr. Knight was devastated over what happened with Terry. Later on, as the case progressed, Knight's attorneys began to suggest elements of self-defense may have been in play, by hinting around that Knight was lured there so a planned attempt on his life could be carried out. For the time being, the man who had historically been described as one of the most feared individuals in the world of hip-hop would sit in the county jail to await a bail hearing, charged with murder, attempted murder, and hit and run. On March 20th, 2015, Judge Ronald Cohen said, you know what? It's this court's opinion that $25 million is reasonable, and so it is set. Knight's family and friends who showed up to court, many of them wearing red to represent their affiliation with the Bloods, audibly gasped at the pronouncement of bail, shocked that Knight would have been given a bail so high, so high that Knight would not be leaving jail, on bail or otherwise, for a long, long time. Knight's attorney implored the judge to take the time to reevaluate and reconsider the bail amount, that Knight has had a hard time in jail, that he's been kept in solitary confinement because of his celebrity status, 
and potential death threats against his life, that he has no contact with his family or friends. They even get better treatment at Guantanamo Bay, he says. He laid out the laundry list of health issues that Knight is suffering from. Among them are diabetes, blood clots, and issues with his vision. The judge seemed pretty much unmoved by Knight's attorney's appeals for a lower bail, even pointing out that Knight himself is turning away meals that are offered to him. And it was in just about that same moment, Suge Knight, seemingly on cue, in front of the whole courtroom and all of the observers, suddenly collapsed to the floor. Outside the courtroom, those who were there in support of Knight could be heard yelling stuff like, this is a public lynching and Black Lives Matter, which is kind of ironic and somewhat misguided based on the fact that Knight is there to face charges that he killed a black man by running him down with his truck and smashing up the ankles of another black man. And on top of that, the one he killed had supposedly been a friend of his. I titled this story The Never-Ending Fall of Suge Knight because throughout his career in the music industry, no matter how many times he went down, no matter how serious the charges, no matter how many times he was shot or shot at, Suge Knight always seemed to be able to resurrect himself. But many of those who followed the life and times and crimes of Knight felt like this may be the fall that he would be unable to rise up from. This would be by far the most serious crime that he would face in his life. Is it the first time he's killed somebody? I can't say anyone could really answer that question. Could he be responsible for having someone killed? That, I believe. I don't think Knight was a man who liked getting his hands dirty. And I don't believe there was any shortage of lackeys around him who were willing to do his bidding and to keep quiet about it. I mean, the killings of Tupac and Biggie are two of the best-kept secrets. Somebody knew something. And you know, we watch shows where cases go cold and investigators always say stuff like, eventually somebody talks. Not so much in these cases. There is a common theme amongst people in and around Suge Knight, and it is to be as uncooperative as possible, no matter what. So these crimes go unsolved. So Knight, a person who established himself as a fabled man to be feared in the world of West Coast gangster rap, some of his exploits being only legend and others being very true, while at the same time brought the genre into the mainstream in the 1990s, now was facing, quite possibly, the longest and hardest fall from grace. This time there was no question as to whether or not Knight was involved in Terry Carter's death. It was all caught on surveillance. Knight didn't have the kind of money that he used to, nor did he have access to any money. And when his attorney continued to motion for lower bail, the district attorney reminded the court of the many underhanded ways that Knight had been known to shake people down for money, 
Knight would levy his own kind of tax, tens of thousands of dollars, just so people could work in the Los Angeles and Las Vegas areas. His attorneys would say all of this is just rumor and innuendo, that Knight never extorted anyone, that he is an upstanding businessman through and through. But those who had previously associated with Knight said no matter how savvy of a businessman he may have been, he never stopped acting like a small-time thug. And as he got older, those who knew him said he slowly deteriorated. And as times changed, the ways that he conducted business, it was just a thing you couldn't get away with anymore. And instead of refocusing on the business that he had built from the ground up, he either could not or would not get back to those roots of who he was from the start. The music producer who had an eye for talent and building careers. Once he lost sight of that, he was never really able to recapture it. I touched on Knight's childhood towards the beginning of this episode. And you know, a lot of times we hear the backstories about some of these guys in the world of hip-hop at the time. They wrote lyrics about their upbringing, stuff like living in rough neighborhoods or dealing with street violence, issues with poverty, broken homes, things that led them to a life of crime, having to resort to robbing or stealing or dealing drugs. This wasn't so much the case with Shug Knight. He didn't come from a broken home. As a matter of fact, Last anyone heard, his parents are still together to this day. And those close with Knight describe his mother and father as the nicest people ever. So if Knight grew up to be a tough, thuggish, bully kind of guy, nobody said he got that from his home life. In an interview with Rolling Stone, in speaking about his parents, Knight's ex-girlfriend and the mother of one of his children said, Shug's dad was lovely. Oh, he's just a dream. His mother is nice too, but she has a mouth on her like Shug. She'd curse you out one minute and then go, well, you know, baby, it's okay, the next. And Shug's a mama's boy, definitely. The one thing that said about Knight that set him apart from his peers was a very sharp next level of intelligence. From early on in life, it was going to be clear that he was going to go places. No matter which direction he would choose, he would find success. Early on, he found that not only did he have a certain charm and magnetism about him that would carry him far, he was also a very tremendously skilled athlete. And he set his aspirations high, wanting much, much more than his parents could have ever possibly dreamed for themselves. In a 2001 interview with The Guardian, he said, I told myself that I'd never live or end up dying in a place like that. I made up my mind that I wanted everything and nothing would stop me. And we've gone through the journey that he's gone through to get there, only to end up in an orange jumpsuit in the L.A. County. Despite all the light sentences, the drop charges, the probation, the slaps on the wrist, if you recall, I did mention he spent a solid five years in prison at one point 
from 1997 to 2002. Those close to Knight, even those who have feuded with him, have said when he came back from his five-year stint in prison, he wasn't ever quite the same. From inside, Knight did what he could to maintain control of Death Row Records. He had a manager who ran the label's daily operations, and they hired a publicist as well. They would go to the prison, which was Mule Creek in Northern California, at the end of the week from Thursday to Sunday to keep Knight up to speed as to everything going on. But when he got out, he wasn't the same. And it seemed as though not only was he living up to the notorious reputation that preceded him prior to going to prison, it appeared as though he had stepped it up. He quickly fell back into the life that he had left behind, as if it were still the 90s. Life was a constant party for Knight, and he was crisscrossing the country from New York to Hawaii. It was a non-stop party, and it was excessive. Yachts, celebrities, drinking, drugs, strippers. But it wasn't going to last forever. While Knight was in prison... Record distributor Interscope had parted ways with Death Row in 1998, and this meant Knight's label was going to have to stay afloat on its own financially. They were still riding the coattails of Tupac's posthumous work, and they also had a spattering of up-and-coming artists. They'd even signed Lisa Left Eye Lopez from TLC for a short time, and she brought about a whole different positive spiritual vibe to the label. But that was sadly cut short when she died in 2002 in a rollover car crash in Honduras. As a matter of fact, Lisa and Knight had sparked up a romantic relationship during her time there. But if you've known anything about Lisa's history with relationships and knowing what you know about Knight, you can bet there was drama. And in case you don't know, I'm referring to Lisa's previous relationship with Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Andre Risen, where she set his house on fire. Twice. It's a long story, but the drama with her did not end there. When Lisa found out Knight was fooling around with other women, which I'm not sure why that was such a surprise considering he has at least a half dozen children that he knows of with an assortment of women, Lisa threw bleach all over his furniture at his death row offices. Knight had hopes of breathing new life into death row to bring it back to where it was in its heyday. And when he got out of prison after those five years, he was ready to go all in on making it happen. Knight orchestrated a media blitz across the country, hitting up all of the biggest radio stations, all of the biggest music publications, the entertainment outlets. They went hard, but it fell flat. Death Row simply didn't have the power of a distributor like Interscope behind it anymore. And every artist, even the most promising ones, were signed with Death Row. None of them had their albums come to fruition. And not only was it because of a lack of distribution, but it was the fact that people were distancing themselves from night mostly out of fear, but also because the money just wasn't there anymore. Knight was in financial crisis. Everything was in foreclosure. 
and he was up to his eyeballs in tax liens and lawsuits. And he eventually would end up having to go back from which he came, being a thug. The offices at death row were crawling with gangsters. There were fights, and some people who worked there wore bulletproof vests and were armed. And Knight's bitterness towards Dr. Dre, Sean Combs, and Notorious B.I.G. never died down. According to Rolling Stone, when you walked into Death Row's headquarters in the foyer, there's a painting of Dr. Dre being sodomized by a blonde man with Combs wearing a tutu and Biggie depicted as a pig looking on. Yeah, he never let it go. In 2004, Knight was accused of paying somebody to attack Dr. Dre at the Vibe Awards while accepting the Lifetime Achievement Award. And afterwards, the man who attacked Dre was actually stabbed by another rapper. By this time, all Knight could do was do everything he could to cause trouble. And this brought about attention from law enforcement, who kept a keen watch on him and his offices. They knew wherever Knight was, trouble was. So if anyone was associated with him or Death Row Records, they were being watched by law enforcement as well. This, along with the fact that Death Row wasn't able to produce any albums for the artists signed with them, caused them to start to drift away from Death Row in search of other options. Even though signing with Death Row would have been a big deal in the 90s, it was a waste of time by the mid to late 2000s. And I've already told you what brought Death Row down. That lawsuit from initial investor Lydia Harris when she won her lawsuit and forced Knight into bankruptcy. After that, he was never able to recover financially. And it is believed that he began using drugs, which he apparently managed to stay away from most of his career. As his criminal career evolved, which we went through, you may have noticed in the later years he began experiencing possession charges for which he was sentenced to probation and counseling, things like that. And of course, there were the two VMA party incidents where Knight was shot, the last one being in 2014 that left him with chronic health issues ever since. Knight's imperviousness had been chipped away and the most feared man in hip-hop had tumbled. All the while, everyone around him is succeeding. Dr. Dre's stock is skyrocketing, culminating with him brokering a multi-billion dollar deal with Apple for his headphones, Beats by Dre. The only thing Knight could do at this point was go back to the only thing that he could bringing it back down to street-level crimes. He was no longer being taken seriously as a businessman, no longer able to put out albums that were raking in the money like they were in the 90s. He resorted to making money in other ways, and one of those ways was trying to collect from people that he felt were indebted to him. And it's also been rumored that Knight was a paid police informant, as he was thought to have had suspiciously amicable relationships with certain law enforcement figures. And Knight seemed like the perfect type of person to be an informant 
because he had that ability to fit in everywhere. He could get into places, get information, feed it to law enforcement, and no one would be the wiser. No one would ever think that Suge Knight would actually cooperate with law enforcement. Though Knight's attorneys would deny that any of that is true. I mean, what are they supposed to say? Tell the whole world that their client's a police informant? He may as well put a bullet in him himself. Despite all of Knight's ups and downs, he still has people that are on his side that believe him to deep down be a good, decent, generous man. And at least one of his baby's mamas would say that he's a very loving dad. He maintained relationships with a handful that remain loyal, who would say no matter how bad things were for Knight, there was always more good about him. And I don't doubt that. I'm sure he gave a lot of people jobs when they needed it. And he would help when people were down. And he guided fledgling careers, not only with hip-hop artists, but across the board when it comes to running a record label. For all the bad, there was just as much good, if not more, so say his supporters. We here on the outside, reading all of the headlines, all the mess, we see all the bad stuff. And yeah, for our purposes, that's what we're into. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not here to, nor I'm interested in doing a piece on what a pillar of the community Suge Knight is or was. Because sadly, for the most part, that is not what his legacy is going to reflect. When Suge Knight ran down and killed Terry Carter, many felt like this was going to be the place where Knight's fall would hit bottom. Based on his criminal history and here in California, a three-strike state, Knight had already racked up two. He was now in for the fight of his life, facing a murder charge. After a merry-go-round of attorneys, and at some point Knight would settle on Thomas Mazzaro, but that wouldn't last either, and if he sounds familiar, he's probably one of the most prominent attorneys Knight hired. He's represented the likes of Michael Jackson, Mike Tyson, Robert Blake, and he's got a pretty good track record of successfully defending high-profile clients. And according to Mazzaro, Knight was completely innocent of all charges, telling Rolling Stone in 2015, I am convinced of Knight's innocence, and I am convinced that these cases should not have been filed. I look forward to defending him. All I'm going to say at this point is that he was defending himself at all times and should not be facing any charge of murder, attempted murder, or hit and run. If I had been in that truck, I would not have even been charged with the misdemeanor. And as far as his robbery case goes, it's utterly ridiculous. Associates of Knights at the time remained uncertain of his being able to bounce back from these most recent charges, though they wouldn't put it past him to be able to do so. According to a friend of his who was interviewed for Rolling Stone, on the evening that Knight was going to turn himself in, they were talking while he was smoking a cigar. He put the cigar up in a tree and said, I'll get back to that. 
So back to Knight's court proceedings. The media was watching as the events unfolded and it became quite a spectacle. Knight was sent to the hospital in March of 2015 when he complained in court that he was struggling with several health ailments. And already mentioned at his first bail hearing during the same month that he had collapsed in court after the bail was set at $25 million. His attorney tried to explain that Knight needed to be out of jail so he could get the proper medical care that he needed for his various ailments. But the judge wasn't having it, and he kept the bail at that amount. Knight was sent to the hospital following his collapse and subsequently fired that attorney over the shoddy medical treatment that he was receiving in custody. The following month, in April, his new attorney filed a motion to have bail reduced, and the judge actually granted their motion reducing bail from $25 million to $10 million, but Knight would not be able to come up with the funds, even at that amount. 20 years earlier, it probably would not have been a problem, but 2015 Shug Knight is a mere shadow of the man that he once was. So, in what I believe was another strategic maneuver to get lower bail in July of 2015, Knight's attorney told the court that it was possible that his client, according to doctors, may have a brain tumor and he is experiencing numbness on one side of his body. And it just so happened that this matter was brought up at another hearing at which his attorney filed a motion to have his bail lowered some more, explaining that his client needed to access better medical care. During the hearing, Knight's attorney also filed a request to have him move to a different cell that the toilet in the one that he was in flushed by itself every 20 minutes and it was driving him crazy. And the bed was too short for a 6 foot 2 or 1.88 meters tall person. The motion was denied. For the remainder of 2015 and into the spring of 2016, Knight continued to hire and fire lawyer after lawyer when he wasn't getting the motions they were filing granted on his behalf. In July of 2016, Knight's attorneys presented a motion in regards to the fact that the identities of several key witnesses are being kept confidential, meaning Knight nor his attorneys know the names of these people who are presenting testimony and witness statements in his murder trial. His attorneys argued that Knight had the right to know. The judge met with the prosecutor and a detective on the case and they expressed their concerns for the safety and well-being of the individual's identities based solely on Knight's violent history, part of which has included witness tampering and witness intimidation. Knight's attorneys claim that the prosecutors relinquished their right to withhold any information regarding those witnesses after they provided court documents to the man that they were using as a jailhouse informant. The judge denied the motion, citing Knight's proclivity for violence. Knight addressed the judge himself this time, stating, My time is ticking some days because of my health problems that I have, and right now, I'm not getting a fair chance to prove my innocence. If I don't have the right to discuss my business or my finances to take care of my own children, how do I have the right to defend myself? I hate to have to go through all this and die in jail. Knight became quite emotional as he spoke. 
The judge told him that he did not want him to die, but motion denied anyway. In March of 2017, Knight was sent back to the hospital once again to be treated for blood clots as the murder case that he was facing continued to drag on due to the constant changing in attorneys and health complications that continually dogged him. Some felt as though that these were all stalling tactics, but the wheels of justice can grind slowly anyway. In April of 2018, more than three years after he ran down and killed Terry Carter, a judge finally set September 24, 2018 as the trial start date. You see, the trial was actually slated to begin on January 8, 2018, but two members of Knight's defense team came under indictment themselves for attempting to bribe witnesses. One of those attorneys, a man named Matthew Fletcher, told Knight in a conversation that he came across a guy who said that he would testify that he saw guns at the scene of the hit and run, but he would have to be paid. He went on to tell Knight that $25,000 was a fair investment to secure his freedom. At least a portion of the incriminating statements were captured on audio recording. At one point, Fletcher having stated, These got a price. Let's get that price paid. I told Shug, you can always make more money. You can't make more freedom. In addition, another one of Knight's attorneys, a man named Thaddeus Culpepper, along with Fletcher, were both charged and indicted on numerous counts including conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit subordination of perjury, conspiracy to commit obstruction of justice, and accessory after the fact to the murder that Knight is being charged with. Prosecutors claim that Culpepper entered into an agreement with a man to provide testimony that he was present on the scene when the crime took place and was a witness to evidence that would be favorable to Knight's defense. This man, in turn, informed the Sheriff's Department of Knight's attorney's offers to pay him to say that he was there and to provide false testimony and that he already told Culpepper that he wasn't there, but he would be willing to testify that he was. The prosecutor also claimed that Fletcher had suggested offering a payoff to Clay Sloan, the man who survived the rundown. They would be attorneys number 14 and 15 to leave the defense team, but that number could be off one way or another. There was also another delay in April of 2018 when Knight was hospitalized again for issues with his eyes or his vision. Oh, and he also needed to attend a hearing for a separate case that he has pending related to either death threats or threats of great bodily harm that he made against the director of Straight Outta Compton, so there's that. But Knight would never go to trial for the death of Terry Carter or the attempted murder of Clay Sloan. On September 20th, 2018, four days before he was set to go to trial, Knight pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter, which in California carries a maximum sentence of 11 years. But because of the three strikes law, the sentence is automatically doubled, bringing the potential sentence to 22 years and another six years for it being a third strike violation. Prosecutors were asking for the maximum, 
a sentence of 28 years. Had Knight gone to trial, he faced a potential life sentence. The other two criminal cases that he was facing at the time, the one with the paparazzi photographer and the criminal threats against the director of Straight Outta Compton, were both dropped. On October 4, 2018, Knight was formally sentenced to 28 years in prison for running down and killing Terry Carter. And with that, Suge Knight's fall has seemingly found its lowest point. It has been a long and steep tumble for one of the most influential figures in rap history. And it would finally take the loss of Terry Carter to bring down a man who had been one of the most feared individuals in the music industry. Terry Carter was described as devoted to his family, to his friends, and to his community. And all he wanted to do that day was broker peace between Suge Knight and those he had a grudge against. It took almost four years for his family to see justice. And at night sentencing, Terry's daughter, Crystal, who called Knight a low-life thug, a career criminal, a disgusting, selfish disgrace to the human species who was unrepentant, remorseless, cold, callous, and a menace to society, also said, that the sentencing brings a measure of closure, knowing that her dad can now rest in peace and that Knight will be behind bars, potentially for the rest of his life. Today, Marion Knight is 53 years old, and he is housed at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. He will be eligible for parole in October of 2037 when he is 72 years old. P. Frank Williams, the producer of the 2017 documentary Who Shot Biggie and Tupac, summed all of this up quite nicely. Suge Knight was given the chance to become the hip-hop Barry Gordy, and he wasted it all on his need to be a gangster. And that brings the 79th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case or any of the cases that we've covered here on the show, please request and join the discussion group on Facebook. There we talk about our show, other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, as well as some off-topic things too. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. You can support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts you can join Patreon and access the bonus content for as little as $1 a month, or you can make a one-time donation to the show through PayPal using our email address, which is CaliforniaPod at gmail.com. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. To consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an eclectic group of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, 
our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And one last thing, I realized a little bit too late that I forgot to thank Patreon supporters at the beginning of this episode, as well as those who supported the show through PayPal. I don't know why I forgot to do it, but I will make sure to include all of you at the beginning of next week's episode. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened, and I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.